So last week we opened our discussion on marriage by suggesting that one of the reasons why marriages fall on hard times is because people have a wrong view of the purpose of the institution. Uh, we tried to talk last week about how in Paul's mind, <clears throat> marriage, first of all, is to show the world what God wants for his people to be. Uh, number two, for reversing the effects of sin and selfishness in the world. And then finally, number three, for unpacking what the gospel is like. But we didn't spend too much time last week talking about what we might call the false ideas of marriage that people have in their head. Um, do a quick survey of your friends and you'll find all kinds of motives for why people got married. I've heard all kinds of things over the years. The, the first one I would identify is um, you know, marriage as, as goal assistance. You know, for a lot of people, the institution of marriage uh, was what it was because there was something they wanted to accomplish in life uh, and you know, the companionship that would come from marriage would really help them along in their desire to achieve that. Um, but of course, you can see the, the potential for problem. If that's your, your motivation for marriage, then once your spouse's sort of utility uh, reaches an end, things are going to get rocky really quickly. You oftentimes hear people talk about feeling very used, very depersonalized when they were treated that way. Second motive that I've heard from people is they got married um, for what we might call a cure for lust. I've talked to lots of young men and women who honestly prior to their marriage were just racked with guilt in their life because of their struggle with lust. Interesting thing about that is there's a slight little ring of truth to it. First Corinthians, Paul talks about how it is better for us to marry than to burn with passion. Um, but of course, invariably, these men would say that marital sex never lived up to whatever fantasies they had about it. And of course, pretty soon they start to feel lust pulling them away from their marriages rather than to it. Um, even when they were married to very sexually willing and beautiful husbands and wives. How do you explain that, by the way? Hold that thought. The third thing I've heard is, is, is marriage as, a, as fear calmer. <laughs> you know, can you recall that time in your 20s and 30s where you began to entertain this prospect of a long-term future of loneliness? And suddenly you begin to look at potential partners as like hedges against bets that you'll end up single forever, God forbid. And so you begin to think to yourself, I mean, what if this is the best I can do? And so you settle into someone who, who clearly is not connected to you in any sort of meaningful way. And so you've got marriages that end up on the rocks. And I tried to make the point last week that when a counselor starts to listen to people talk about this in this way, oftentimes it sounds a little bit like a foreman at a construction site who has a workman approach them and say something like, look, I've been trying to screw these bolts in all day uh, with this hammer, um, and I just can't get it done. I, I feel like I need to quit. I'm just not any good at it. And of course, the foreman looks down at the pitiful worker and it's like, dude, <laughs> That was never meant to be what a hammer was used for. You've been using the wrong tool for the job. Of course, you can see sort of the parallel. Is it possible that one of the reasons why I'm struggling in my marriage is that I'm trying to use marriage to satisfy things inside of me that marriage was never intended or able to satisfy? I want it to bring me something that it was never designed to do. Well, of course, Paul knows every bit of this. He also knows that there's a difference in the way in which men sort of approach marriage and how men do so. And so he begins to introduce a topic that we have to pay attention to because Paul does. Uh, this has become quite controversial in, the, in our day. Um, gender differences, the differences between men and women. And it's important for me, I think, just to get it all out in the open, that the Bible, I believe, teaches that in the most general of senses, men and women will approach relationships from different relational grids, 
um, different goals, different sort of means of engagement, which means that our gender differences extend beyond the merely biological um, into what might, you, you might call the, the psycho-personal, uh, how we function on the inside. Um, and so the next step to working through our marital difficulties is getting a sense not just how God views marriage in general, but how men and women function differently in their world orientation, if you will. So we begin with that, what we, talk, we talked about last week, this very key term in verse 32 where Paul says this mystery is profound. We said last week that that's really a key to understanding the whole book of Ephesians because God has a secret mystery, Paul says, that he's letting out, that he's going to reunite all the broken things in the world, not the least of which are our marriages, under one head, even Jesus Christ. And the most conspicuous place where you're going to see that happen is in this institution he calls the church. But the second most conspicuous place where it's going to happen as well is in marriage. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to say you really can't understand marriage without understanding the church. And the more you look into the church, the more you'll understand your marriage. That was last week's message. But there's a feature in this passage that I think comes out so clearly that always fascinates me about Christianity in general. And it has to do with the way a Christian views life as an exhibit to the rest of the world about what it means to know God. In other words, a Christian sees even the mundane things of life as a great narrative that's being put on for the world to see um, as a demonstration of this mystery that God is unfolding to show what He's up to in the world. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players, said Jacques in Shakespeare's As You Like It. Well, that's got a ring of truth to it, doesn't it? So before we take the next step here, and we realize that there's a drama being put on, doesn't it make sense then that there are roles that should be given to men and women, respectively, to help make the play what it is? This living drama that marriage is that Christians put on to show what the kingdom of God is about. And so what we find this week is that God actually does that. He calls men and women to unique complementary roles um, and in doing so unlocks a lot of wisdom, I think. A lot of wisdom that honestly can help us begin to untangle these struggles that are our marriage. So I want to drive, dive into these three. I want to look first of all at the two roles. The role of the church that will be played by wives. The role of the head of the church played by husbands. And then finally, we'll talk about the big finale, which is this profound union that's coming about. Okay, so let's take that first point. Uh, in the role of the church, wives. Now, boy, <laughs> you talk about your loaded passages. Verse 22 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, look, um, women have been choking over that word for as long as I can remember. And so... It feels a little important for me to sort of admit the fact that, let's be honest, men, there's probably a good reason for them to do so. Tyranny in marriage um, uh, and, and anything that sort of passes as submission, maybe in what we might consider American models of masculinity uh, in the sort of mid to early parts of the 20th century, I, I don't think we ever need to equate that with God's intention in marriage. Um, no offense, but our grandparents may not necessarily be the best models here. But still, that word submission hangs there, and it just grates this generation. But I want to try to unpack it with two little quick insights from the text. I think it will help us really wrap our mind around what it means. The first thing that amazes me whenever you study this text is how often people forget to read the verse 
that occurs directly before verse 22. Because in that verse, we find that we're supposed to give thanks, quote, for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Did you catch that? I really find it vitally important to stress that any command that Paul gives to a woman to submit in the Bible is couched in the context of a mutual submission to each other. I've come to say it this way. God calls men and women to submit. It just manifests itself in complementary ways. So that changes the spirit of the command, I think, in one respect. But secondly, though, we've got to dive into what that word actually means. The word submit, it turns out, is a military term that was used to describe soldiers in an army. Think about it for a second. What would an army be like if there were generals and no foot soldiers? It wouldn't be an army at all, would it? And so this is what Paul is challenging wives with. When Paul says for wives to submit to their husbands, what he means is, is to get behind your man, to be his biggest fan, to be someone who, who rejoices in his success and not his failure. So that when the Bible looks at a woman and says, be a woman, what it means is, is to use your power in such a way to empower another to do things that enable him instead of replaces him. Let me see if I can illustrate how vital this is. Ladies, what if Paul's command to submit is not so much for your interest or something wrong in you, but for his? In other words, it's not as if Paul is saying, hey, submit because honestly, you wouldn't understand. I mean, after all, you are a woman. That is not what Paul is saying here. My premise, though, is, is that embedded in these commands are hints at the very nature of what motivates men at their very core. In other words, what if Paul has this vision of reuniting humanity that actually respects men and women's gender differences rather than obscures them? Because what I want to suggest to you is that wives, to, to wives, is that wives, men need your respect in the same way that a general needs his soldiers. An army is woefully incomplete without soldiers. And man is woefully incomplete without someone cheering him on. And you want to know why? Because God manufactured that man to be someone who longs for significance. Deep inside the heart of every man is a desire that he wants to move out into the world so he can make his mark to be the man, as we say. It's a desire for adventure. It's a desire for conquest. And my favorite illustration of this has always been the video game industry. And I realize that for parents, we look at that with a roll of the eyes, thinking that's like the worst possible thing my children have gotten into. But I also think we need to pay a little more attention because doesn't it say something about the fact that it is largely boys that are attracted to these sort of adventure games and these sort of uh, fantasy role-playing things? What if, it's, what if the reason why those things are so popular among boys is because, honestly, those are, those are fantasies where maybe in that universe I can be the conqueror that I wish that I was, that I don't feel like I am when I'm out in the rest of the world. What if that's motivating something fundamentally male in a man? There's a great old book written by a guy named William Harley entitled um, His Needs, Her Needs, uh, Building a Marriage That Lasts. And the, the premise of the book is uh, Harley oversaw this huge sample study asking men and women what their top five needs were in marriage. 
What was the thing they said in their marriage that they needed the most to function? Okay, bear with me. We're going to do the same for the ladies, but ladies, this is what men said were their top needs. Number one, sexual contact. Men reported that that was the place where they feel important, where they feel significant. Secondly, they said companionship. Knowing that there are things that we can do together so I can have a companion by my side. Number three, trust. A man needs to know that, I, that, that a woman honors his efforts to sort of be there for her in the way in which he can. Fourth, domestic support. Ladies, from the time in which a young man is born, other young men walk up to him and say, I bet you I can throw that farther. It's always a competition. The world buffets men. And so coming home to a place that's not a battle was important to him. And the number five, he said, his number five most important thing was admiration. <laughs> Having someone be in his fan club. Now look, right now you're picking that to pieces, thinking to yourself, well, I don't know if that's actually the case. That's fine. But I just want you to notice that there's a common theme running through that, isn't there? I think you can sum all of Paul's encouragement of what a wife is being called to be for her husband with the word respect. Why? Because that's what he was built to have and know. So in verse 33, Paul says, let the wife see that she respects her husband because he knows that's fundamentally at the heart of what a man needs. I think Paul is commanding to something that he knows is going to be hard for women because, frankly, the closer you get to your man, the less you're going to find to respect. There's plenty of reasons to disrespect him. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe, maybe he's unmotivated. Maybe he's irresponsible. But the question is this. Can I, as his wife, contribute to the formation of the best in him by making sure that my critiques of him don't overshadow my encouragement that I really am his biggest fan? Find a way to do that, ladies, and there's a possibility of my marriage changing, of growing. And there's something that you, you, have the power to unleash in him by getting behind him in that particular way. Okay, so in the role of, uh, of the church, our wives, secondly, let's look at the second big point here, and that is in the role of the head of the church, our husbands. Okay, look, verse 25 gives us what the man's ro role is in this play, and the main way in which that role will be carried out is to love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And of course, then he defines what love is by giving himself up for her. Okay, so there's your definition of love. Love is giving yourself up. And for the sake of our discussion, can we please purge our minds of whatever definition of love you have in your head that we've gotten from the culture and fundamentally realize that love is nothing more than giving up. So that when the Bible looks at a man and says, be a man, He's saying, be to your spouse like what Jesus was. Jesus dies for the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus sacrificed supremely for the church. You need to have like Philippians 2, 6 and 7 in the back of your mind. He, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of what? Of a servant. <laughs> Paul is saying that when you love your wife by setting aside your interests for hers, it has the sum total effect of cleansing and, and cherishing to a woman. Look, to cherish something means that you make her feel like she's valuable, like she's precious, like she is a treasure to you. And if you can find a way to do this, there's a power that's unlocked in her that has the ability to reorient her self-image. 
In other words, if a woman gets the sense that she is truly and powerfully valued by you men, then she can, become, she can begin to recover uh, from what every single magazine, every single television commercial, every single Instagram influencer has been telling her every day of her life. And that is that she is only precious enough to be, well, to be stared at when she looks like a supermodel. Gentlemen, women are wounded uh, from the looks, uh, the glances at other women, the, the comparisons that we make to the television images on the screen. And these scars can only be healed uh, by, by a cherishing in the way in which Jesus cherishes the church. And again, men, I, I, what if the reason why Paul is commanding this is because there's something fundamental in a woman's nature that needs that kind of self-sacrificing spouse? A woman needs to be granted space to do what she does the best, which is to draw people into nurturing and protective networks so that she can show them love. In other words, a woman's instincts are geared towards tenderness and beauty and the grant of security. So the, the book we were talking about before, The Top Five Needs from Harley, here's, here, listen to what a woman says. Number one, she said, my number one need is for affection. Affection is nothing more than a way of letting her know that she's special, that she's valued. Secondly, they reported that they wanted conversation, to simply be let in. You affirm your spouse's importance when you let her in on your life. Number three, honesty and openness, to allay whatever fears that there might be someone else that knows him more deeply than I do. Number four, financial support. Um, in my experience, I tend to think that women see money more as security while men see money as um, a conquest. But a woman looks and says, is this a safe place for me to nurture? And financial support is about that. Number five, she said a family commitment. Because I got to know that the family is more important than work or even your recreation if I'm really going to influence people in this way. Okay, so do you hear the theme running through those sort of things? You could sum all five of those up by saying love. Which is why the first half of Ephesians 5.33, Paul says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself. It's such a simple command, but that's what she's built to have. So again, husbands, love your wives because she needs it. Wives, respect your husbands because he needs it. It doesn't mean that wives aren't supposed to respect their husbands, and, or wives aren't supposed to love their husbands and husbands respect their wives. Of course they are. But what I think he knows is, is those things are going to actually come kind of naturally going to come naturally to us because those are the things that I want. It's kind of easy for a man to respect his wife. It's kind of easy for a wife to love her husband. Why? Because that's what they want. But Paul's like, no, give to them what they need in this marriage. And in the midst of that, there's a complementary unlocking of something. Men, when you die, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Men, when you die to the extra hunting weekend, when you die to the, the, the extra hour on the computer game, when we die to the extra late night time at the office so we can land the big sale, my interest, <laughs> and we do those in the name of loving her, we respect, we, we show her love, and it transforms her in the process. Okay, look, so the role of the church, our wives, and the role of the church are the wives, in the role of the head of the church, our husbands. And what does this lead to? The third point is this big finality of, pro, of a profound union that exists. The heart of the passage, I think, really turns on verse 31 where Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. 
He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, that word there he's clearly referring is, is, is a sexual picture. That at the heart of that sexual act, there's a profound mystery about it. Remember last week we said this mystery is mega. And what Paul, I think, is seeing here, and what has captured his imagination, is he sees the character of God himself reflected in our marriage. C.S. Lewis calls it the great dance. I've mentioned this before from this pulpit. This great dance, Lewis says, is the coordination, uh, the mutuality, the, the perfection, the simplicity, and the order, and the beauty of, of, of what is pictured in the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-existent, self-sufficient, joyfully delighting in one another from before the foundations of the earth. That reality, the beauty of the Trinity is that reality itself is imprinted with the coordinating movements of this Trinitarian God who themselves (laughs) take on roles. You realize this, that not every member of the Trinity does the same thing. The Father is the author of salvation. The the, the Son is the accomplisher of salvation. The Spirit is the applier of salvation. Each one the same in substance, equal in power and glory, our confession says. Each doing their part to secure the joy of God's people, the church, with His larger intention of sweeping them up one day in His own coordinated dance of eternal joy. That's what Paul is talking about. And so doesn't it stand to reason that when this kind of God creates, He would put His own nature on display in this glorious mutuality of marriage? So y'all, your gender, with all of its uniqueness and complementary beauty, that's part of this display of the Trinitarian God. A drama that is put on for the whole world to see every time a man and a woman bond themselves in marriage. Something gets proclaimed that's beautiful. Look, I've only got a couple more minutes, but I want to try to dig through a couple of applications before we finish this uh, series, this little short series on marriage. The first one is this, I think. I think as we begin to apply this, we've got to realize that each one of us has to be responsible to begin to dig through our own personal histories and start to unpack the way in which these deep, powerful longings for security on the one hand for a woman and significance on the other for a man how the wounds at those deep levels have impacted our marriage struggles. When I'm hurting, there's nothing more natural than sort of get fixated on what someone else did and what my partner did. But here's the deal. You have to do your work, husband and wife. How did that traumatic event from my early childhood affect my desire for significance and safety? What kind of habits of mind have I nurtured that I need to start questioning? What kind of verdicts did I pass on my spouse very early on in my marriage that have gone almost completely unquestioned, by the way, that are presently contributing to the the struggles we're having now? So we got to do our homework, first of all. But secondly, there's a lot of wisdom here, and I can only introduce this idea, in trying to wrap our minds around what's going on with us, sexually speaking. And I can simply say it like this. You are more than your hormones, my friends, because embedded within your spiritual DNA is either masculinity or femininity. The differences go deeper than mere plumbing. And it's only when we begin to take a look at the longings beneath my sexual appetites long enough to find a way for, well, for for God to be my significance, men, and for God to be my security and my lover, women, 
There's a whole lot more to be said about that, but only when we discover that do we hope to get any way, any way through broken sexuality. Thirdly and finally this, I do think it's worth us, I think, looking at the larger goal. What is the goal of my marriage? What was it that I was really looking for in marriage? And to close this out, I'm reminded of a, of a phrase that I heard a preacher say many, many, many years ago uh, about what he said he was looking for in his relationship with his spouse and in the relationship with every other married couple he ever saw. And he said, I always felt like there was something beautiful about a weathered sense of loving knowing. In other words, he said, over the years, what I'm looking for is not like wild sex fantasies or fabulous wealth with an early retirement, or, or even I'm not looking for some unwavering support with zero uh, conflict involved in it, but rather a weathered sense of loving knowing. And here's the reason why I love that phrase. Uh, we, I love it because of a number of years ago, I, I was really into a lot of folk music, and there's a singer-songwriter by the name of Cheryl Wheeler, who we just fell in love with, and she wrote a song that I was about tempted this much to play it for you on this tape, but I'm just going to read you the lyrics because it's just that good. But it always captured for me the best sense of what this weathered sense of loving knowing was. And Cheryl Wheeler writes this about an elderly couple that lives in her neighborhood, perhaps even next, next door uh, near where she lives. Listen to how this lyric goes. She says, And they seem to know each other very well. They speak across the garden, but not a soul could tell. They can read the summer sky and they can hear the back brook swell. And they seem to know each other very well. And they drive up north on Sunday afternoons and he buys her wooden windmills and whales and quarter moons. She feeds the birds all winter and she knows them by their tunes. And they drive up north on Sunday afternoons. And all summer long they make the garden grow, keep the green so strong. Oh, wish them well for standing on their own. And they buried their old dog in their backyard with a fence and plastic roses and St. Francis standing guard. She speaks of him quite often, and to this day she takes it hard. And they buried their old dog in their backyard. And she brings me plants and flowers all the time, and we dig the holes together. She has to help with mine. When she pats the soil around them, oh my, her eyes can shine. She brings me plants and flowers all the time. And they speak about their lives as almost gone, waiting for the sunset from an old and distant dawn, selling off the land except the part they're living on. And they speak about their lives as almost gone. All right, I'm sorry, but um, you listen to something like that reflected and you start realizing that something that precious, that kind of precious intimacy, doesn't it just doesn't it just make all of the feeble aspirations that we might have had for our marriage just almost downright embarrassing? What if what God is trying to fashion is this weathered sense of loving knowing, where regardless of the ups and the downs and the conflicts, regardless of how well or how poorly I've navigated this maze of my own personal history, she knows me and he knows her. And there's a mutuality there that's being built that honestly will never be separated because it's built around what God is doing in the church and that will eventually be enjoyed by all of God's people together in glory with Him, happy and holy. I'm sorry, nothing else comes close to that. What if we aspire to that in our marriages? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, would you then be gracious to us to, um, to readjust our focus
Perhaps we've paid too little attention to the differences that exist between men and women. We pray your grace upon us that we would look and see it in different eyes and that we would work and commit ourselves to, to treating each other differently. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.